there is this thing called um, mission drift, where organizations have a purpose that they begin with, and then over time, they drift away from that original purpose, their original mission. And they've coined this term mission drift because it's happened so many times. So for example, Harvard University uh, was established 400 years ago. In 1692, the uh, mission, you might say, it was really their motto uh, for Harvard University was truth for Christ and the church. Truth for Christ and the church. An early statement from the 17th century, from Harvard University, when they wanted to explain what the goal of schooling was, what the goal of going to Harvard University was. They said, it is for every student to know that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Now, anyone who knows anything about Harvard University now knows that that is not the goal of Harvard University. It's very ironic. They still have their motto as veritas, which is truth. Uh, They're anything um, but proclaiming the truth. Now, it's very easy for us to look at that and and, uh, laugh at it, but the reality is that for many churches, unfortunately, this mission drift has happened many, many times. It's very easy for churches to drift away from their original purpose. And so we need to constantly realign ourselves with the purpose of our church, not specifically as Christ Church Togonong, but as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus. We need to realign ourselves with what our purpose is. And so we're going to do this from a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, there's many passages you could go to. And again, this isn't going to be expansive so that we can cover everything, but I hope that we can cover the fundamentals And I think 1 Peter is a very helpful letter to give this because Peter is writing to followers of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire in an area called Asia Minor where they've been scattered. It's a mixture of ethnic Jews and Gentiles who have become part of a lot of the churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation 2 and 3. These are a lot of uh, the churches, various areas throughout the Roman Empire. And Peter is reminding these followers of Jesus who they are and how they are to live. Or in other words, he's reminding them of their identity and their purpose, who they are and what they are supposed to do. So let's read the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, and then we will work our way through this. So please open to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin from verse 1 to verse 12. This is God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Throughout the past century, I mean, throughout church history, but particularly throughout the past century, there's been a lot of confusion over what the church is supposed to do. People have said that the mission of the church is really to just be a blessing to people because God is interested in blessing people. And so we just want to bless people and love people. People say, well, the mission of the church is to do with caring for creation because God has created this world. And so we want to care for creation. And so they emphasize environmentalism and these sorts of things. Now, there may be aspects of those things that Christians will do, but I would say that they are not fundamental to being the church. They are not fundamental to what the church is supposed to do. So what are the fundamental aspects of the church's mission? Now, I believe as we look through this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll get three particular pillars that the church must be established on. Of course, the church is established on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But these pillars that um, make the foundation of the church's mission, I think these three pillars that we see are that we are to bring glory to God. Everything that we do should be about the glory of God. We're not driven by the glory of man. We're driven by the glory of God, number one. Number two, we are to be a holy people. So we are to pursue holiness. We're to live holy lives. Number two. Number three, we are to be a people who proclaim Christ, a people who declare Christ, a people who proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and who urge people to come into fellowship with Christ and be discipled and live the rest of their lives following this same pattern of living for the glory of God by pursuing holiness and declaring Christ. Again, there's many other things that the church might do, but these are these pillars, these three pillars that the church must be about. So we're going to begin looking from verse four. We'll come back to verses one and three, because I think one and three and then 11 and 12 sort of form these bookends of this passage that talk about how we are to live as a holy people. So if we come from verse four in 1 Peter chapter two, Peter says here, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. As you believers have come to Jesus Christ, that's who this is about, that's the living stone, as you come to the living stone, who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Jesus is the living stone because he is the most crucial and foundational piece of the building that is the church. He is the most crucial and foundational piece to all of life, to the very universe. 
living stone Peter introduces because he's going to pick up on it through these Old Testament references that we have through verses 6 to 8, where Peter quotes twice from Isaiah, from Isaiah 28, and then from Isaiah 8, and then he quotes from Psalm 118. And the main idea around the living stone here, as you've come to Jesus as the living stone, is that Jesus is both the cornerstone of the church, which is the most crucial and foundational piece of the building. You can't have a building without the cornerstone, number one. And number two, Jesus is also the stone who becomes a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling for everyone else who does not recognize him as the cornerstone, as the foundation of all life and existence. So this is to say that Jesus is either treasured as the foundation of all life and existence, or he is the stone of offense who will crush you in the end. And here is where we get a glimpse that I just want to focus on for just a moment. This isn't going to be the main focus, but I just want to draw attention to an aspect of God's own mission that we must understand. And I won't have time to it, but it's important to, to, to understand that the, the church's mission is um, distinct yet inseparable from God's own mission. The church's mission is not exactly the same as God's mission. We can't save people. There's various things we can't do, but it's inseparable from God's own mission. And here we have an aspect of God's own mission that we must understand. God's mission is centered upon Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire universe is centered upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this is important to see here because if you've ever studied anything about God's mission, there's a lot of people now who would say that God's mission is really his desire to bless people. Or God's mission is his desire to care for creation. His desire that people would understand that he is a, a good and loving God and that he wants to really bless people. In other words, he wants people to be happy. That's kind of the subtle understanding of God's mission. And what we see in this passage here is that although there's aspects of God's mission that are indeed to do with blessing and creation, they're all centered upon Jesus Christ. But what we see here is that the mission of God is fundamentally centered upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What this passage is going to show us is that there's really only two ways to relate to Jesus. Though we live in this world of apathy, where a lot of people would say, well, I really appreciate things about Jesus' teaching. I'm just not ready to submit to him or recognize him as Lord. You know, I love the way Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Uh, I'm not so crazy about him saying that everyone else is going to go to hell who doesn't submit to him. So we have a lot of confusion around the teachings of Jesus and what God actually wants to do in bringing in um, sending his son to the world. And what we see here is that either Jesus is the cornerstone who is treasured as the foundation of life, number one, or number two, he is the rock of offense who will ultimately crush those who reject him. And there is no third option. There is no middle ground. There is either a complete recognition and submission to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, or he becomes the stone which crushes you in the very end. And this is all 
making sure everyone is moving toward one of these two options and leaving no middle ground in there. It's interesting, and I wish I had more time to go into this, but the context of Isaiah 28, which is the first quotation from the Old Testament that we have here in chapter in um, verse 6, where it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The context of that in Isaiah 28 is actually where God is addressing the deadly self-sufficiency of the Israelites and their blind ignorance. So the Israelites, uh, it's God is saying that um, they think that they have made a covenant with death, that they will not be destroyed. Basically, it's saying that they think they're invincible. They think that they're just going to keep going about in their lives and not be destroyed. And God comes in and says, therefore, I'm going to establish this stone this stone that is a cornerstone, and everyone must believe in that stone. It's as if God comes to all the people in their blissful ignorance who assume that they can just keep going on in their lives without recognizing God's absolute sovereignty over them and their absolute dependence upon him. And God comes in and says, you cannot continue down this path of ignorance. You must come to the living stone and bow before him or this stone will crush you. So fundamental to God's own mission is that all his children would see Jesus Christ as the foundational piece of life and existence, as that which is to be absolutely treasured and where our hearts are ravished by and all others would eventually stumble before this stone and bow before him whether they like it or not. Now that's a brief look at God's own mission, which is centered upon Jesus Christ as the crucial piece of all life and existence. Now Peter transitions in verse 5 after explaining what God has done in Jesus Christ. He then explains this new identity and purpose for God's people. And here's where we're going to focus on today. In verse 5, Peter says, after he explains that you have Come to him, a living stone. He says from verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He gives these similar identities in verse 9. If we just skip the quotations and we will come back to them. In verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, these identities are all rooted in the Old Testament identity that God had given Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, after God had freed his people from Egypt and he brought them into the wilderness, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he's about to give the 10 commandments or the 10 words. And he says in Exodus 19 verses five and six, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that's identical language that Peter uses here in verse 9. A kingdom of priests is a royal kingdom and a holy nation. So God comes to his own people Israel, he frees them out of Egypt, and then he says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be to me this treasured possession, this royal kingdom, this holy nation. And Peter here is writing to both ethnic Jews and Gentile followers of Jesus, as is the context in 1 Peter, 
And he is giving these identities not to take them away from Israel as if to say, well, plan A failed. Here's plan B. Let's give it to the church. That's not what's happening here. And a lot of people get nervous over that. Rather, what Peter is doing is showing that God has faithfully preserved these promises to his people despite the faithlessness of his own people. We know reading the Old Testament that Israel often did not obey his voice. They did not keep his covenant. They broke it. That's why he had to exile them. That's why he sent them away. And yet Peter is saying these promises are still here. These promises are still here to those who will obey. It is all centered upon Christ as the living stone. So notice in verse 8, he says, after quoting a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, that in Isaiah 8, the context is God giving that to both the house of Judah and the house of Israel, saying, you uh, are going to come to this stone. There's going to be a stone of offense and a, a stone of stumbling. And Peter says here from verse 8 of 1 Peter 2, they... That is, the people of Israel stumble because they disobey the word. There's, of course, a remnant of Israel. But as a generalization, they, as in the people who were brought out of the wilderness, brought out of Egypt into the promised land, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, the key thing is that despite their disobedience, Despite the disobedience of God's own people, God has provided a way for these promises to be received, namely through the perfect obedience of his son, through the living stone that we come to. So where Israel failed to obey the voice of God and keep his covenant, Christ perfectly obeyed the voice of his father and kept the covenant they had made. He lived a life of perfect and utter obedience. And Peter is saying here that for everyone, ethnic Jew or Gentile, anyone who has come to the living stone, anyone who has come to Jesus Christ, you receive this identity of God's people by virtue of coming to Christ who redeems that identity that was lost. It's because we have come to the living stone. See, it's not so much about a physical ethnicity anymore. It's not about physically being an Israelite. Rather, clearly what Peter is saying here is that we're being built into a spiritual house. This is a spiritual people. These are spiritual realities. We are a chosen race, Peter is saying, not because of any physical descent, but because of a spiritual descent, because of a new birth where we've come to Christ. So we are now under Christ, who is our head. And there's only two options. Either you're under Adam or you are under Christ. And those who have come to the living stone, you're now a chosen race. You're a holy nation. This is the marvelous reality of the gospel that Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2 verses 15 and 16, he talks about how Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, I recognize this is a bit technical to do with Jews and Gentiles and how they come together. But bear with me. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility to create in himself one new man in place of the two. And then in Ephesians 3, 6, he goes on to talk about how Gentiles, these people who were far off, these people who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, he says, they are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, because the gospel is where we come to the living stone. So Peter is encouraging these new believers from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds to live in light of this new identity that Christ has purchased. 
And think about how radical this is for Gentile converts. Remembering Gentiles were anyone who was not ethnically Jewish. Think about how radical this reality is. If you were a pagan in the Roman Empire who then wanted to follow the God of Israel, it could have felt like a double loss because not only are you not ethnically Jewish, but if you genuinely want to follow Yahweh, then you have to renounce Caesar, which means you've got a traitor mark against you. There's a double whammy. And it would have felt like you're an outcast very easily. But Peter is saying here to these people, no, remember, you have come to the living stone. You're not an outcast. In Christ, you are a treasured possession. In Christ, you are no longer an orphan. You are adopted into a royal family, a family which transcends the very best of the Roman Empire. You're not of an impure pagan nationality. You're of a holy, pure nationality. You've been cleansed by Christ. You have a new identity. And he is calling them all, regardless of their background, to find their identity collectively in Christ. Now, if I can just give an application on this, on how important this is to understand in our day now. How important is this truth of our identity as a collective people in Christ in this world Even in many churches where we see so many churches accommodating all of these secondary group categories and identities, whether it's based on ethnicity or social class or even marital status. Often you can have people segregating into the singles and the marrieds, and we need to make sure the singles are catered for, and then we need to make sure families are catered for, or ethnically we need to make sure that people of color are catered for. Or class, we need to make sure those who are middle class are mingling with those who are lower class. We love to categorize ourselves, and we especially in this day love to work out which category we're in and then work out whether that's an oppressed category and whether we need to be catered for. We love to do this. And here we see that these secondary categories, whether your ethnic background your gender, your class, your marital status, it's insignificant in comparison to this new collective identity that we have in Christ. We're a treasured possession regardless of your background. You've come to the living stone. You have a new identity. And you don't segregate yourselves, again, based upon secondary categories or identities. Now, This is our identity as God's people. This is part of the the foundation of how the church should understand their mission because we need to understand who we are in order to determine what we are to do. So often uh, our purpose or our practice is shaped by our identity. And so Peter wants us to understand that how we live must flow out of who we are and who we are is a treasured possession a new spiritual house that is a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And now here's where we see the fundamentals of the purpose of the church. These are these three pillars that I want to focus on now to finish off. These three pillars of what the church must be about. Number one, the first pillar, the church must be about growing in holiness fundamental to being the people of God are that we are to grow in holiness. The main thrust of this passage here in chapter 2, I would argue, actually begins in chapter 1, verse 13, 
where Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have to make sure we are setting our hope fully upon the grace to be brought to us. And then he says, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then the rest of this passage all the way through chapter two and beyond is then how to live as a holy people, how to not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but rather being conformed to the pattern of Christ, how to do this and do it well. We see this in the bookends of our passage in verses one to three of chapter two, and then verses 11 to 12. These are all marks of holiness. This is fundamental to being the church. So often we kind of think about mission and we expect something like flashy or concrete, You know, we we expect something flashy like heading over to Southeast Asia and building houses, serving the poor over there, or we want kind of concrete goals of mission, like we're going to reach 50,000 people by the year 2030, or we're going to plant 100 churches in the next 10 years, and we want something flashy and concrete. These aren't necessarily bad things. I'm not too crazy about the numbers, but fundamental to being the church is that we pursue holiness. That's fundamental to being the church. So as Peter says here in verse 1 of chapter 2, we put away malice. We put off mean words and mean thoughts. That's what we're called to do, deceit. We're not to be deceptive. We are to act with utter transparency and utter integrity. We're to be open books. We have nothing to hide. We put off hypocrisy. We live consistently with who we claim to be. So if we say we're a follower of Jesus, then we live as a follower of Jesus. We're not a hypocrite. We're not double-minded. We put off envy. We no longer act with jealousy or covetousness over other people's situations. And slander. This was convicting for me as I was preparing this. We, of course, do not bring people down, but I would even go so far as to say that our goal should be to protect the reputation of all people wherever possible to defend their reputation unless it becomes clear that it's indefensible. But we're not to be a slanderous people. If we then move on to verse 11 of chapter 2, we see that holiness, Peter says here, requires that we abstain from the passions of the flesh. If there was ever a countercultural reality when we live in this world where we're told to gratify the desires of the flesh and actually to not do so is to be untrue to yourself or inauthentic. Peter's saying here, stop doing that. Stop gratifying the desires of the flesh. Abstain from fleshly desires. What are fleshly desires? Anything that weakens your conscience, anything that promotes lustful thoughts within you, things which do not stir you on to love Christ and love your neighbor. It's kind of hard to believe that watching four hours of some romantic drama show is really going to stir you on to love Christ. It's going to make you what I would say spiritually flabby. It's going to make you want to go into a coma or Woan about your own life situation. And the key thing here, Peter says that these are not innocent vices, and we often treat them like innocent vices. In verse 11, midway through, Peter says, they wage war against your soul. That's what he's saying. They wage war against your soul. They're not innocent vices. Too many Christians treat this life like a game of monopoly when the reality is that 
we are in the trenches on the front line of warfare. We're fighting for holiness to the glory of God and we must treat this life as such. These aren't innocent vices. These are things which wage war against your soul. And Peter's not suggesting that we just submit, put up the white flag. He's saying fight, fight for holiness. Fight for holiness to the glory of God because that's who you are. You're a new temple. You're a spiritual household offering up praises to God. So live in this way. We can even see this call for holiness in the very identity that Peter gives here. Notice he says back to verse 5 and 6, we're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. This is temple language. He's saying you're forming this new temple. You've come to the living stone and you like living stones are being pieced together like this new spiritual temple. What was fundamental to the temple? It was the place of holiness. It was the place of God's presence. We were meant to keep unclean things out of the temple. And so as this new temple that have been purified by the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, we are meant to live pursuing holiness to the glory of God. Peter, uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. I won't quote from it, but Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 22, the same idea of being built as a, a dwelling place for God. So fundamental to the purpose of the church is that we pursue holiness, and this must be front and center to what we do. Secondly, the church must be about declaring Christ. Midway through verse 9, in 1 Peter 2, Peter gives this new identity and he says, this is so that you may proclaim or announce the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Fundamental to being the church is that we declare Christ. We declare how glorious he is. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us, that has brought us out of darkness and into his light. Now, I want to focus on two aspects of this very briefly. The first aspect of declaring Christ is more to do with internally how we function as a church. The second aspect, I would say, is the main focus of this, which is to do with the church and its relationship to those outside of the church in the world. So firstly... The first aspect of declaring Christ is to do with internally, and that is as we worship the Lord together. Fundamental to being the church is that we regularly gather to declare his praises. This is what we do today. This shouldn't simply be a, a monologue from some preacher, though preaching is fundamental to the church, but we all gather together to all unite in declaring the praises of our almighty God. In verse 5, we're told that we form a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. What are spiritual sacrifices? We, of course, think of Romans 12, where we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, our very lives. But an aspect of this in gathered worship, the writer of Hebrews helps us understand in Hebrews 13, verse 15, where the writer says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's a sacrifice of praise to God as we acknowledge his name. And we're not just acknowledging him like, oh, yeah, I know that Jesus guy. We're acknowledging him like Jesus is my life. I adore him. 
Christ is everything. We're acknowledging him by declaring how glorious and excellent he is. And so as we gather and sing together, we are doing this. We are declaring his excellencies as we sing, O Holy Night. We're not just doing it like thousands of millions of people will do in the next few weeks where they have no idea what the words are saying. We're doing it saying, proclaiming our adoration of Christ. And these are offerings to the Lord as we pray to our God. It's like a spiritual sacrifice. The book of Revelation likens our prayers like incense that is being offered up to God. Our prayers are are, are a fragrant offering up to the Lord. These are not meaningless things that we do. There is cosmic significance in everything that we do as we declare the praises of our God. These are spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Now, the second aspect of declaring Christ, which is the main thrust of this uh, verse here in verse 9, is that we are to declare Christ among those who do not know him. The church is, of course, God's vessel to declare the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and sinful world. We see this famously in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which is often the go-to passage for mission, where the church is called to, to go into the world, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Now, the first part of this Great Commission is, of course, to declare Christ. How will we make disciples unless there is someone proclaiming Christ? We announce the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And notice that this declaration is always meant to flow out of hearts that are ravished by what God has done in Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 9, Peter gives this new identity to to think of the, the pagan Gentiles who were outcasts and meaningless people. And now Peter is saying, you are a treasured possession. You're a holy nation. And therefore, you're now meant to declare the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God's mercy is poured out upon us in order that we would then overflow in gratitude with a desire to declare how wonderful this God is to those who do not know him. And we're not simply announcing the reign of Christ, which often some people understand this idea of mission and declaring his excellences excellencies as though we're sort of just declaring and announcing the reign of Christ, kind of like you announce the, the running of a new political leader. People present a political leader and say, well, you choose. Who do you want to vote for? We're, of course, not doing that. Christ is not an option among the plethora of other saviors. He is the one savior of the entire world. So we are declaring that Christ is the only way to salvation. We're declaring that he is the foundation of all life and existence, and we're urging people to come to him. We're urging people to come out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And if the church does not have a declarative aspect of this, if we do not have this declarative aspect where we are heavily invested in making Christ known among the peoples of the world, then we have drifted from our purpose. We have drifted away from our purpose. Thirdly and finally, the church not only is to be a holy people, not only are we to declare the, uh, the excellencies of Christ, but we are to bring glory to God. The driver for us is always the glory of God. 
We're not driven by humanistic desires. We're not driven by the glory of man. This is where the mission of the church can so often drift off into areas that aren't necessarily the focus of God's people. We're not driven by humanistic desires. So when the focus of the church becomes about having a food pantry to meet people's physical needs, that's not a bad thing. But when that's the focus of the church, then it has drifted from its purpose. It has become, I would say, often more about the glory of man than the glory of God. We are driven by the glory of God, which means our driver is primarily to meet spiritual needs by calling sinners to come out of darkness and into the marvelous reality of Christ as their sins are forgiven by his work on the cross. This is the foundation of God's own mission, calling out a sinful people, his elect people, to come and worship him through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this passage here, as we finish, even shows us how a desire for the glory of God relates both to our conduct, how we live, and also to declaring Christ. We see, obviously, in verse 9, that the purpose of us declaring Christ is for the glory of God. A fair translation of declaring His excellencies is basically saying declaring how glorious He is. It's all for the glory of Christ. And then in verse 12, if we think about our conduct... Notice in verse 12 that Peter says here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Holy lives, good conduct is for the glory of God. From conversations with our neighbors to showing up on time at our workplace, working diligently there, it's all for the glory of God. When will God be glorified? He will be glorified on the day of visitation. God will not be glorified by unbelievers today in much of our conduct and our proclamation. It's not a glorious thing to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's not a thing that seems praiseworthy to say, I'm actually not going to watch that movie because I don't want to tempt myself. That's not a glorious thing. And there is always a danger in confusing glorifying God with seeming praiseworthy in the world, where a lot of people say we're to bring glory to God, and the assumption is that that's going to look marvelous in the eyes of the world. Often it will not look marvelous. Often it will look foolish. Often it will look absurd. And so we don't conduct ourselves based upon what is praiseworthy by culture's standards, but rather by God's timeless standard. That's how we conduct ourselves. Not based upon what seems praiseworthy in today's standard, but by what seems praiseworthy by God's timeless standard. So we are to live for the glory of God, and we are to trust that every deed that we do in Christ's name, regardless of how it seems by today's standard. Isn't this a glorious thing that everything we do, regardless of how it seems, regardless of how foolish or absurd it seems by today's standard, it will eventually result in glory to God in the end. Everything that we do in the name of Christ, pursuing this path of holiness, doing it for the glory of God will result in praise and glory to our almighty God 
in the very end, for he is working everything together for his glory. And so the passion for the glory of God that we must have is really the last pillar that keeps us from drifting from our mission, lest we become about the glory of man rather than the glory of God. As I finish, the mission of the church may be hard work, but it is not hard to understand. The mission of the church may be hard work, but it is not hard to understand. And don't let anyone confuse you with fancy words or new ideas. These three pillars are central to what we must be about. The clear fundamentals that we see layered throughout all of scriptures that we are to be a holy people who are called to be holy. We're meant to pursue holiness. And we are a people who are called to declare Christ among those who do not know him. And all of it is to be for the glory of God, for the praise of our almighty God. Now, if these are the pillars, then the crucial thing that allows these pillars to even be here, the crucial thing that allows us to even be here is, of course, the cross of Christ. And so we're going to sing before we take the Lord's Supper now. And I hope that what we can see as we think about the mission of the church is that what comes even before these pillars is our constant reorientation to the cross of Christ, to what God did in Jesus Christ in sending him to live that perfect life of obedience that his people never could, that you and I never could, and to then go all the way to the cross to suffer an excruciating death in our place in order that redemption would come, in order that your sin and my sin, as grotesque as it is, would be nailed to the cross and all of our wretchedness and all of our vileness would be washed away by the perfect blood of Christ.